This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Shoma Stout, a Baha'i from the Boston area who is a pediatrician and founder of the children's organization Raising Peacemakers. I started the interview by asking Shoma where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Kolkata, India. I was born there and was born to a family that was very idealistic. Not very wealthy, actually. My often, you know, I was the only one in the family to be eating during parts of my childhood. But my family, what they lacked in money, really made up for in idealism and values. It was a, a Hindu family, and my mother just had enormous faith that no matter who you were or how poor you were, that you had the opportunity that everybody had the responsibility of using whatever gifts they had to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I grew up believing, believing in God and more importantly in one's responsibility to commit one's gifts to making a, making a difference. And how many kids were you in your family? Just two of us, but we were 12 years apart. Mm-hmm. My brother and I are very close. I was in Kolkata, which is the the city of you know if you if you've ever seen City of Joy, mm-hmm. that's Kolkata. Mm-hmm. You know Leo Tolstoy once said after coming visiting India and in particular visiting Kolkata that that here was proof that God existed mm-hmm. and despite massive poverty and just sometimes just the sheer amount of and mass of humanity that's there and the social ills can and be quite overwhelming, yet somehow life continues and things continue to get done and moves forward, and people find, even in the midst of abject poverty, opportunities to connect with each other as human beings, to laugh, uh, and to share. And that, in many ways, Kolkata really represents, to me, sort of something of the triumph of the human spirit Mm. over the material conditions of the world. Mm Mm-hmm that you can see beggars who may not, may be missing limbs and may only be able to eat at most, you know, once every several days, still get just one tiny piece of roti or or rice and share Mm -hmm. with five other people. Mm. It's that commitment to, that what you have, you you have not just for yourself, but for for everybody who's in your family. The the strong prevalence of family in India, Poverty here often poverty occurs out of some out of social conditions, but often occurs out of a fracturing of social connections. In India, poverty happens just because there are not truly not enough resources for the p- number of people that are there. Mm-hmm. But just because you're poor doesn't mean you no longer have family. 
that loves you or that cares for you. Often it's families that are there together. And there's often a strong sense of community there. So I think more than anything, when I grew up in India, I was very conscious of both of that mass of people who clearly had so very, very little, yet somehow found a way to triumph over it, to be generous, to to be giving, to to laugh at despite it. And, and I don't mean to idealize it because mm-hmm. there are parts of that poverty that are just terrible, you know, where children and, and adults and women die for reasons that no one should die for anymore that where systems desperately need to be fixed. It just, there's such a sense of strength of spirit there that, you know, I think really affected me growing up. I was eight years old when my family immigrated to the United States. We lived in Indiana, which was quite quite different actually from from India, both in terms of temperature, but also in terms of the differentness in a way in the, in the people that were that were there in that community. Now, what were the reasons for you immigrating? My father had somehow, trying to do three or four jobs, managed to finish a PhD and was offered. He, he did very well in research, and so he was invited to come as a postdoctoral fellow to Notre Dame. So my parents came seeking a better life and, and education for themselves, but also for me growing up, because it's truly difficult uh, in India when you don't have any any money or finances to increase that. So it's interesting that your father was working very hard while he was getting his Ph.D., yet you're saying that at times it was only you and the family that could get a meal because of the financial situation your family was in. Yeah, yeah, you didn't make any money when you did that. So my grandfathers both died when my parents were each six years old. Mm Mm-hmm. And my father basically ended up needing, in order to continue his education, needing to win a scholarship every year since the third grade on, for which he would compete against 100,000 other kids literally in a district. He was very gifted Mm -hmm. in terms of his his abilities, and he was quite, he's brilliant. And his teachers actually couldn't bear to see such a promising student not be able to get farther. And so they really raised him. His mother was not literate and didn't have a very good way of making an income or supporting him educationally. But his teachers raised him, and when he graduated from high school, he didn't even realize that he'd placed in sort of the top 20 or so of students, you know, which is remarkable, actually, with the The few resources that they had. And had actually won a full scholarship to college. It, my mm. mother actually lived in the same town and grew up with him. And, you know, she was fortunate enough to be the oldest of four daughters of a woman who was actually educated, who actually had a bachelor's degree at that time, which was quite unusual. But her family was very, very educated. But again, didn't have many re- have as many resources. And you know, why is that? Well, because if you don't have a man who's making an income at a certain level... Imagine today having a single parent who is a teacher mm-hmm. who is supporting four children and a mother-in-law. Mm. You know, just the finances of that here, if you can imagine that, and then translate that to perhaps Indian standards where sure. there was even less. That it, It's hard to do that. But my, I mean, my 
grandmother is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she, we affectionately call her the managing director of the family, but it, <laughs> it's out of deep respect. She valued education so strongly. Uh, all four of her children are incredibly devoted to her, but I think three of them, two of them got masters, one of them got a PhD. She didn't get a higher degree, but her son ended up through my aunt actually teaching him, learning everything that he was learning and then trying to teach him. His son ended up placing first class first, so becoming the top student in India. So Mm -hmm. the idea that education was noble Mm -hmm. and that it was a way out of poverty in addition, and that it was never meant to be just self-serving, but meant to serve all of humanity. This, this is something that was a very strong theme, I think, in my family as a result. So my father ended up having, you know, a lot of fits and starts to his education. Neither my father nor my mother realized that they'd won full scholarships to college. So my mother was able, you know, with the encouragement of my grandmother to start attending university at Lady Brabourne. It was truly a sacrifice for the family. And she's studied math, and my father started teaching in the school in which the professors, the teachers had supported him and helped to raise him, until a gentleman was passing through the town and heard about this poor youth who was such potential, and offered to take him into the city and pay for his education if he would help with chores, etc., around the house. So mm. that's how my father obtained the rest of his education. Mm. And what was his work in Indiana? He went to Indiana as a postdoctoral fellow mm-hmm. in physical chemistry mm-hmm. at the University of Notre Dame. And my mother followed a year later as a PhD student in math at the University of Notre Dame. And then after that, he did well in research there, went into semiconductor research, and since then has, you know, went to Motorola and has probably now over 13, not 13, he is in the tens of, of patents after his name and over 300 mm-hmm. publications and became a senior person there and really became very foundational in the Bengali community. My mother became a professor of math and is still teaching. You know, I remember when I got married and I went back to India for a reception, you know, the people who showed up at our party included like the the Robin William equivalents or the you know, the Pele equivalents in right. India. But what was amazing to me was that right alongside with them, my mother had made sure, my parents had made sure they went and found every single person that they could think of who had helped us as we were, mm. as we were struggling. From the woman who took care of me in the afternoon, so after school, so that until she got home from working to everybody, to the, our landlords back in the day who would give them a break sometimes on the rent or whatever. That's and it was, it was just startling to see, see those people and, and see that they were received with as much or more love and welcome as the, the, the rich and the famous of, of India. Yeah. So what was Indiana like? Indiana was essentially a remarkable place. It has much of the same community feeling to it. Mm-hmm. in some ways but what was different is that if you didn't belong to that community it was often very hard so my parents were at Notre Dame which is actually relatively cosmopolitan and they had among the adults a lot of people who were very interested in being welcoming and hosting mm-hmm. people of different cultures growing up as a kid was harder there because there wasn't a lot of diversity Mm. So there were a lot of misconceptions about, you know, what it meant to be Indian. And, and it took some time to 
and, and some adjusting to deal with those. But I think that experience really gave me a lot of empathy for the level of challenge that children actually go through growing up in our, our school systems, mm-hmm. but also the complexity of issues that they face. And I think knowing the kinds of, remembering the kinds of things that I thought of and felt and went through at that time really helped to inform a lot of what went into Peacemakers as, as we created that later on. Right. And just as a reference to listeners that are listening to this interview versus the one you're, that I've conducted with you earlier about raising peacemakers. So I refer people to our inner, earlier interview where you described that organization that you founded. So you said it took a while to sort of adjust to... To life in this. Life in, yeah. <laughs> it did. How long did it take you to sort of <laughs> get settled and to the differences of life from your home country? Oh, oh I think I've been adjusting ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, but I think that I, I don't think I felt like I gained my balance back until into high school. It was truly challenging. I mean, getting beaten up at the bus stop. Oh, my to, gosh. You know, getting teased every single day at school or in the bus or, you know, I mean, it was, it was interesting because there were people of every culture or race who also stood by me mm-hmm. and formed sort of this tight-knit group of people who were willing to step out of those boundaries and say that we support everybody. Mm-hmm. That, that we'll be friends with people no matter what. But then there was this whole lot of people who really didn't know what these things were. It, it didn't help matters that I was very, very good in school. Right. So that not only was I strange and dressed strangely and looked strange, but I did better than all of them in, in tests and stuff. So right. that that probably didn't help matters. <laughs> And I reacted by eventually learning to protect myself and to to talk back and sometimes even to take on the qualities of that, that they showed to me. And it wasn't a very healthy thing to do. I didn't right. have a good way of dealing with it. Yeah. That was some of what I thought of, both, both how people treated me, but also the reactions that I had and what might have helped. Mm-hmm. me to form better reactions. I remember when we moved to Arizona from Indiana four years later in 1984. So you weren't, you were still not in high school yet? No, it, I was in I was in Indiana from the age of eight to the age of, I remember we just turned 13 when we left. Mm-hmm. So were these troubles that you were describing, were they in Indiana or Arizona? In, in, in Indiana. Yeah, because, I, 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 pardon me for interrupting, but I'm just really surprised if if you were in the general area of Notre Dame, uh-huh. w- which was attracting people, I assume, of all of many cultures with children. How is it that you ran into a student body that was so narrow-minded? I mean, it's kind of well. We lived in South Bend, which was outside of Notre Dame. Okay. So okay, yeah, sort of beyond the reaches of. Most of the faculty and yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing was that you mentioned the the dress. So you didn't assimilate to Western dress immediately when you. No, I did, but I didn't know what was fashionable. Ah, okay, right, <laughs> sure. Nor could my family, frankly, afford what was fashionable. Sure, you sure. know, by the I mean, 
you learn very quickly what you're supposed to, you know, wear. But I, I couldn't really ask my parents for those things because yeah. I knew that they were giving me the best that they could. Yeah. And it would hurt them terribly to think that it wasn't good enough in some way. Mm. But it, and it was. It was perfectly functional clothing. It was just, you know, polyester and the right. wrong, wrong style. So, so you knew that it would hurt your parents to to sort of ask for stuff to help you fit in. Yeah. Well, I don't think... I think it would more... It would hurt them to not be able to provide it. And you knew that. You sort of knew that inside. Yeah, I knew that. And so I, you know, I wouldn't ever do anything to hurt my Mm -hmm. parents. Mm -hmm. So just because I knew how much they'd already sacrificed Mm. to even make it. I mean, we we came on a a prayer, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, borrowing money from this person and that person to to make it over. And you were aware of all this at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, it it wasn't an option really to ask them for different clothes. Mm -hmm. And and I knew that at some level it wasn't really about the clothes. It was about the fact that I was different. Yeah. So I was one of two Indian kids in my school. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other one was going through the same stuff. Yeah. 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 So what was Arizona like? So Arizona was very different. And what part of Arizona? I was in the Phoenix area, the Mesa Tempe Chandler mm-hmm. area. I remember because I had developed reactions too that I felt were unhealthy. I remember when I moved to Arizona, I decided I just wouldn't speak to people for like at least initiate conversation with people sure. for a good six months, so I could sort of reprogram myself mm-hmm. to to see people in a different way and mm-hmm. to react to them in a different way, mm-hmm. and that was one of the most important times of my life, I think, in a way. I felt like I almost reinvented in part who I was and was able to, you know, sometimes the world mirrors back to us what we give it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think with prejudice and what happens is sometimes prejudice starts from one person to that person, but that creates a reaction. Mm-hmm. And that assumption is made with the next person who then reacts, which creates a reaction in them. Mm-hmm. And that thing just spirals. Mm-hmm. And at some point, someone has to say, I'm done. We're mm. going to stop the cycle and see what happens. And so I decided I would try and see what happened if I did. And in Arizona, because there are many other cultural groups, actually, well, actually, because I think there are many more um, Native American groups as well as many more Hispanic mm. communities. Mm-hmm. People were much more used to seeing people who were not just Caucasian in the way in which they looked. So people just didn't think much of it, that I was from India, even though there weren't really more Indians there than, you know, in my school than there were in Indiana. Mm -hmm. But there were more of many other different kinds of ethnic minorities. And And that did make a difference. But I think probably... The biggest thing that made a difference was I, you know, didn't assume that everybody was going to be against me in some way or was going to pick a fight on me. And you so, didn't you didn't assume that. Yeah, right. Now, how is it that you didn't assume that when you got to Arizona? I, I decided to reset. We actually made a conscious decision that I was going to start over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized that I couldn't trust my own responses. Mm-hmm. or my own reactions to people. So I, I literally decided to just be silent and to see what happened. And it, what I found was that people reached out 
and I think it's also, you know, as you get older, mm-hmm. you know, people, you know, as other kids get older, too, they learn more and they learn how to interact with people better. So you're saying that if you had done the same thing in Indiana, you would have not ended up with the reaction you... That might very well have been true. I don't know. Interesting. I certainly think it would be worth a try. But yeah. if I had stayed there, I would have needed to do that. Uh, no matter what. I'm just thinking well. from initially, I mean, from initially starting in, in Indiana, you were just who you were. You were just yourself, and you ran into the, this prejudice. Right. Uh, whereas when you went to Arizona, you decided, I'm going to reinvent myself mainly by being quiet so that I don't initiate any kind of negative response. And I, I guess my question was, if you maybe the fact that you slid in there... <laughs> It's hard to say because your variables are yeah, changed. You know, there are. If, I mean, if you had just been yourself in Arizona very well, you wouldn't have gotten the reaction you did in Indiana simply because you had more a level of diversity in right. Phoenix than you did in, in South Bend, Indiana. Right. And the schools were bigger, too. Yeah. I mean, in my graduating class from high school, there were 1,002 students. Mm. That allows for a lot of people who are different yeah. in there, in that mix. Mm-hmm. And when that becomes part of your norm, to think that different people exist, and that's just part of what you grow up knowing, mm-hmm. it, it makes a difference yeah. in how you react to people right. who are different. I'll never really regret that experience because it taught me so much mm. about myself as well as about what kids go through every day, but also a little a little bit about the nature of prejudice. I don't think it's anything compared to what people who underwent slavery, for instance, went through, or sure. or even what African Americans might go through every day. I don't think it even begins to compare. Right. But it gave me some empathy for what those feelings might be. Sure. And how it creates reactions, how, how it changes one. Yeah. And, and how to try to address that in some, mm. in some way. So high school was a good experience for you? Yeah, high school was was great. I actually moved again to Arizona in, in middle school and then went on to high school. And during middle school, I just just from that period on, I think, gained more and more and more confidence. And then by high school, I was in a large enough school. What I realized was that, you know, there were different ways in which you could be, quote unquote, popular in my school. You could be, you could go to all the dances and stuff like that or be a cheerleader or whatever. But really, the other thing that you could do was to be kind to people mm. and as many people of as many backgrounds as you could. And so, you know, by the by the time I graduated from high school, you know, I, you know, was vice president of, you know, a different organization. I joined speech and debate and had found a way to have my voice mm-hmm. and to be able to use it in a constructive way in the world, even though I'd never never actually made it to a high school dance because my parents would never actually allow that or, or a high school party. Mm. I was still nominated for a homecoming queen, which, you know, it's so you never showed up? funny. So you never showed up? No, no, because I was, wasn't allowed to go. <laughs> no, that's a riot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, you know, I think the person who, who ended up winning was, was perfect for it and probably would have meant even more to her. Yeah. But it was, it was really more a sign of, of I bring it up uh, largely as it, more as an example of, of growth than anything else. But, yeah, yeah. You know, it, no matter what what happens to you, you can you can grow past it mm-hmm. uh, over time. But yeah. it, it helped to know that to, to gain the confidence to know that you you could that you didn't have to accept other people's mm. thoughts about you. 
and that ultimately if you could find your own voice, if you were true to yourself, you could find a way to be attractive for exactly the person that you were. I didn't wear particularly stylish clothes in high school either. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that was the major difference. Right. I, I think it was really feeling more comfortable with who I was. Mm. So what happened after high school? Oh, I went to college. And um, where's that? At Harvard. Mm-hmm. By that point, I, I felt it was college was wonderful. Harvard is one of the most diverse campuses that there is. There are people from all over the world who come there. It's just an incredible place because your peers are amazing. The number of people who are there with different perspectives who are just brilliant to learn from but are also just incredible human beings just blew me away. Mm. And the people who, who had such different perspectives and viewpoints and cultural and religious backgrounds than you was, was remarkable as well. Mm-hmm. I had not ever intended to go to Harvard. I was actually convinced that only snobs went there. And my parents had to really, really twist my arm to go. So it was their idea. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. I was going to go to Berkeley. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> yes, it is. But I went, and I was actually really glad that I went, because it's a very supportive environment, especially for, I think in general, but for undergrads, it's it's hard to beat it in terms of support for your growth. Hmm. And when you say in terms of your growth, uh, what are you referring to? Academic support? It's both academic support, but also for your growth as a person. And how's that? So Harvard ascribes to a liberal arts philosophy mm-hmm. and the idea that people should really grow a renaissance type of way in their perspectives. But also that, you know, that community service was really important, that being well-rounded was very important. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I counted once and realized I had 13 assigned mentors, <laughs> you know, who were somewhere who were in your concentration and some who were specifically not in your concentration, some mm-hmm. who were doing what you were interested in doing later and some who had nothing to do with that mm-hmm. so it was, it was this balancing of, of perspectives in a way but enormous support from you know for whatever it is that you were interested whatever niche you found so you know I think while I was there we started the South Asian Dance Organization to teach um, Indian dance and then in addition I started something called the Given Tree which was part of Phillips Brooks House which is a community service program a form for the healing of racism through our Baha'i club after I became a Baha'i. But whenever students showed real passion and interest in doing something, whether it was academically or extracurricularly, there was just enormous support and mentorship from people. Mm. That really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So tell me the story about how you ran into the Baha'i faith and became a Baha'i. Oh, well, I first heard about the Baha'i faith actually in in high school from my best friend, Eric, who told me about this. You know, I I grew up a Hindu, and Hindus pretty much just accept everybody. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily feel that they need to know what the other people are doing or have an interest in investigating the truths that other people have. It's sort of more something you're born into and you walk in that path and you have your own particular path of service and worship. So when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. There's a lot of similarities, but it didn't occur to me to even investigate it further because it's just, you just accepted, you just accepted it. You didn't necessarily investigate something, something Mm -hmm. like that. 
When I came away to college, there were people of all different cultural and religious backgrounds. And I, I tried to find a spiritual community of, of Hindus. And, you know, largely 